HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. To the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Ben Leventhal, founder and CEO of Resi. We'll talk to Ben about food, wine, restaurants, tech, trends, and of course, Resi. We'll taste the California Sauvignon Blanc for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Ben Leventhal is the co-founder and CEO of Resi, a mobile app for people who love eating at great restaurants but hate hassling for reservations, and for restaurants who want a dynamic operational software platform. Ben previously was co-founder of Eater.com, a well-known national food and business blog. And another little-known fact about Ben is he's the tallest stack of tortilla champion. Is that true? It is true. It is true. It is a true fact. Welcome to the show, Ben. Good to have you on. Good to be here. Let's uh, give our audience a little background on who you are and how you got to where you are. So give me a little uh, 
little info on your journey to how you wound up at Resi, which is where you are today? Uh, well, I was born and raised in New York. <laughs> okay. And uh, I think it's safe to say that restaurants have been part of my life. Uh, uh, when you say New York, New York City or a combination of New York City and uh, Larchmont, New York. Okay. Uh, my parents both grew up in Brooklyn and moved out to the suburbs as an extended experiment. Both professionals. Uh, both professionals. Uh, and we, as a family, moved back to the city and I went to high school uh, in the city and I've been uh, in New York City ever since. Okay. Um, so we, we grew up uh, a family going out to eat quite a lot. Uh, for my birthday, year after year, I got to pick three restaurants to try. So I dragged the family out for breakfast, lunch, and dinner at three new restaurants. And I, at that time, I was using the Zagat Guide to pick the spots. And admittedly, it, uh, for certain years, it was places like Planet Hollywood oh and uh, <laughs> the Fashion Cafe, if right. you remember that spot. Um, but I've always loved restaurants, and I've always felt incredibly comfortable in restaurants and um, uh, sort of uh, energized by restaurants. And and so when I graduated college, I went to school in, at GW in, in Washington, D.C. When I graduated college, I went to work at VH1, uh, and I quickly picked up several side projects and hobbies that were in and around the restaurant business. I uh, produced a newsletter for a couple of years that was really just a list of places to eat and drink in New York City, and I sent that out to a, a list of uh, about 5,000 people, and it was just my weekly curated list. Did it have um, a name? It was called She Loves New York. Okay. Uh, and uh, the Why muse, she when it's he? Well, the muse of the site was a, um, a guy I worked with at VH1, actually, and he was just exploring New York for the first time and navigating the waters of New York and the dating the dating uh, you know rules of the road and um, so it was he was the muse and the site was sort of talking to him and so the point was she loves New York now go and show it to her okay um, and so that led to me meeting my eater co-founder Lockhart and we uh, had a real sort of Similar, but be a little more specific. I mean, what brought you two guys together? I mean, you were doing this new. Well, I was doing She Loves New York, and he was working on a blog called Below 14th Street, uh, which was chronicling literally the physical storefronts, what was changing, what was being built, what was coming down uh, on the Lower East Side, which was his neighborhood. Uh, And so, if you think about what Eater has become it's about neighborhoods it's about restaurants right. the dna of eater is really two things it's one is my curated list of those places that i loved and and my take on the scene and two is that obsession with locality and with right. um what's going on in your city uh and so you know we, we had really we had this was 2003 2004 and this is the sort of dawn, if you will, of, wasn't of blogging much. in New York right. and the sort of blog media scene and Gawker. Do you remember any other people doing stuff then? Oh, I mean, there's there's various sites. I mean, you know, I mean, so, some of them still exist, but, you know, Gothamist was writing about food and, right. um, you know, there's, there, there was a bunch of other stuff. There was something called the Strong Buzz and there was something called uh, the Food Section. Um, and there's all these little things, but it's the dawn of blogging in New York and Gawker is the big, is the big, um, uh, example, obviously. And so, you know, you've got all these different bloggers and people that are writing about New York and living in New York. And, uh, you know, not not surprisingly, it turns out that Locke and, Locke and I had some friends in common and brought us together. That's how it came together. And, um, and, that's, and that's where we started. Um, so that was... When did it really materialize? So that's, that's, that's all sort of the backstory, 2003, 2004. And then... Um, 
And then in 2005, we launched uh, in July after about six months of, of tinkering and playing around behind the scenes. Um, uh, and we launched in July, and, and, uh, and from there, you know, we, we, it took off. So you had a run at Eater for how long? So I was running Eater. I was running Eater um, for four or five years and uh, loosely involved for a little bit of time thereafter. Um, and uh, obviously it's still, it's still very close to me in terms of, you know, how much I care about it's it. your baby. Um, but now I'm, it's... Well, I, tell I, us what ultimately happened. I mean, well, we sold, sold... We sold the um, to properties a fairly to Vox major Media, player, yeah, Vox to Vox Media. Media at the end of 2013. Uh, and now it's in, I think, 30 cities, give or take. I know they right. launched London this week. It's been quite fun seeing it develop. Did you, were you able to monetize? Were you making money? Yeah, I'd say it was a media company. I mean, we, we were able to sell it because we had, I think, you know, we had great product market fit in terms of what we were, uh, what we were publishing. And, and we actually did um, uh, have a sales team that was, that was successful. So, yeah. So you, like you said, you sort of towards the end at Eater. You, you pulled back a little. Well, yeah. I mean, there, there was various forces at play, but I left the company in about 2010. Um, I was involved in helping, in helping the site go with a national launch and, and various project stuff thereafter. But I started exploring other stuff at around, in around 2010. Right. You, did, you, uh, you did a few things. I, I did a few things. I did a couple of projects with the Food Network. I worked on a site called Kitchen Surfing, right. which was a marketplace for chefs. Uh, you know, it was the Uber for chefs, if you was will. Was that for before a time. its time, or I don't know if it was before its time? You are seeing another wave of those kinds of companies. But that's why started I asked because you're seeing um, a handful. Yeah, you of definitely are major people in it. I think that people are entrepreneurs and investors, and and you know the the the, the dining public or the eating public uh, continues to sort of be mesmerized by this idea of bringing chefs into the home. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in a similar well, way. Chefs that are rock stars. Chefs Restaurants are rock stars. were temples. Chefs were rock stars. Yeah. Now sommeliers are rock stars. Absolutely. And in, in the same way that you had Uber sort of making black cars accessible to right. everyone, the idea of, of, of private chefs becoming accessible is sort of, you know, it's kind of a tantalizing idea. Uh, I don't know if it was before its time. We still haven't seen somebody break out and get it right. Right. I, uh, it's a very hard thing to do. Right. You know, it's a, another Maybe show it's not the best or right idea. Uh, we haven't seen had... the right execution so right. far. That's for sure. Right. Um, so get me to Resi. You get to Resi yeah. at about 2014. You filled in the couple of years. Yep. So, so at the end of 2013, um, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, whom you know, uh, and I, having spent really the better part of a couple of years riffing on ideas, and uh, I would say... How did you come to meet Gary? Well, I came to meet Gary in the early Eater days, actually. Okay. We, we had a mutual friend who was hosting wine dinners, uh, wine tastings, blind tastings where everybody bought, brought a bottle, you know, the classic format. And uh, Gary and I were at those tastings together um, and, uh, you know, we're fast friends. Um, Met and bonded. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which, of course, is not hard over 10 bottles of wine. But, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> Come home that, with anything. But we met back in those days and, and, and had been friends for some time. And I think um, in many ways had been thinking about trying to figure out how to do a project together. And uh, at the end of 2013, 
as he was starting the Vayner uh, RSE fund and I was looking for something of real substance to sink my teeth into, um, you know, we, we kind of coalesced around the idea of food and technology and restaurants and started talking generally about what that might look like. And, you know, we sort of gravitated towards this idea of Resi, which was to say, there's all this technology in restaurants that's garbage and this industry is changing rapidly and you're seeing be- consumer behavior change. Everybody's on their phones instead of on their desktop computers and restaurants are struggling in myriad ways. And so there's something here. Um, and there's really something here. And so, you know, Gary is Gary and, and uh, I love I love talking ideas and riffing just as much as he does. And right. so, you know, that's how that got started. So we'll talk about Resi in a few minutes. I want to cover a bunch of other things. But I could tell you a story. I was at a Nick game with Gary and AJ and I think a guy named Mike Playa. And Gary leans over to me and he says, I have this great idea. Not that he was taking credit oh, for sure. it. But he goes, I have this great idea. It's, it's this reservation service. Would you pay a couple of bucks to get into the best restaurants? He wasn't even done with the sentence. <laughs> I said, I'm in. You know, I love the idea. And I think it was about a year, a year and a half later, you know, when everything happened. So I know you guys were working on it. Let's talk about a bunch of things, and then we'll get specifically into Resi. I think you would be a great guy to tell me about current wine, food, restaurant trends. I want you to tell me what you're seeing now, what's going on out there, because you're really on the pulse of it. Well, I think that we're seeing... uh in terms of the restaurant scene, I think we're seeing a couple of big things. Certainly, the business of running restaurants is getting harder, and it's getting more complicated, Why? Uh, more sophisticated, because the stakes are higher, and, it, and it's more expensive to open a restaurant than it ever has been. And so uh, being successful requires a higher level of sophistication, I think. Um, so the business part has become more of a focus than ever. I think it's safe to say that the business of restaurants has... Um, in many ways, become the center of gravity in a way that food was actually right. 10 years ago. Uh, and so what you're seeing as a result of that is savvy operators are playing with different kinds of models, uh, different kinds of revenue streams. One of the reason, reasons why takeout and delivery is becoming something that's trickling up to the highest, really, level of restaurants is because that's an opportunity for a new revenue stream for a lot like of a restaurants. Like David Chang. Yeah. As they're, seeing, as they're seeing costs of doing business go up, the opportunity to get some better utilization out of the kitchen and to generate revenue against, you know, deliveries and takeouts, that's something that they need to be exploring. Um, and you're also seeing, obviously, restaurants play, restaurateurs play around with a lot of different formats. So now this side, there's a sort of, there's still the very high end of fine dining, which is, you know, guys like Danny Meyer and Will Gadara, who are really running incredibly sophisticated and nuanced and I would say graceful restaurant operations, but you're also seeing a lot of other kinds of operators play with hybrid concepts. You know, you have somebody who's running a restaurant at night and a cafe during the day. Um, and I think that those things, you're seeing that as a result. What's of, an example of that? Uh, there's a restaurant called La Pecora Bianca, which is a cafe during the day and dining at, fine dining at night. But you could also, you know, it's not it's not a stretch to say that something like Le Pan Quotidien is a result of how dining is changing. Changing That's, you know, this sort of, it's a restaurant, but it's a cafe, and there are waiters, and you are ordering off a menu, but, but, it's, but it's sort of, you can tell it's something that's much more closer to sort of, you know, uh, quick serve than it is necessarily fine dining. Right. So, I, you know, I think that's a, that's a big headline that you're seeing in the industry right now is just the, the, 
the, the amount of experimentation and the fragmentation in terms of format that you're seeing in, in restaurants for sure. Give me, give me some food trends. Food specific. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you brought up two great examples. I mean, the restaurant is a business. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of food trends, obviously local and uh, sort of farm fresh is continuing to be something that um, people are very focused on. You're seeing now hydroponic and other kinds of farms that are actually bringing, you know, for example, you can grow lettuce. Uh, there's a there's a company called Bowery. I think it's called Bowery Farms, and they're doing all hydroponic farming in a building in New York City. Right. So, you know, farming is changing and that's impacting restaurants because now suddenly you can say you have local lettuce and it wasn't grown in soil, um, but it is local so in the, the same way. So, you, you know, that's the local that's farm to table is even becoming more micro, like rosemary's on the roof or the Brooklyn farms on the roof. It's definitely Hydro- becoming more micro. It's just becoming uh, yeah, more. Yeah. Well, it's be, no, I wouldn't say it's the, I wouldn't I wouldn't be pessimistic about okay. it. I think. I think that uh, farming is getting more efficient. That's certainly something you're seeing. It's sort of obviously a, a parallel industry. It's not exactly what we're talking about. But all restaurants now, you know, the price of entry on ingredients, I think it's safe to say, in the real true dining category, you got to have local stuff. you got to have a perspective on, on sourcing. Uh, and that's really something that has moved from, you could call it a trend five years ago, now to sort of just a way of doing business. So I think that's a big one. Well, you take a place like Stonehill, you know, Blue Hill, Stone Blue Hill at Stone Barns or Blue Hill, you know, and they've been doing it forever. Are are places trying to do it and they're just kind of flubbing it? It's like calling potato chips natural because there's no additives. Well, I think they're, I think restaurants are making making a real concerted effort. I mean, I, I mean, it's all good. Yeah, I, I think it's all good. And I think that um, uh, we'll continue to see how it evolves. And I and. But I think that the focus on it is what's important and what, what is encouraging is that, that just sourcing and ingredients, you know, um, again, it's, it's now just how restaurants right. operate. There's, there is just no – you can't run a sophisticated restaurant and expect to be taken seriously unless you're taking your sourcing seriously as well. Right. People expect it, demand yeah. to look for it. Yeah. How important is wine to a restaurant? Well, actually, I think that what we're seeing now is actually a return to wine as a focus in restaurants. I think you definitely are seeing... Return, when did it fall off in well, I your don't know. calculation or mine? I don't Not, know, you know if it fell off, but what I guess what I'm saying um, is I'm noticing that there is now a real connection being made between wine service and what the restaurant is marketing as their atmosphere, as their cell. So I would give you two examples. In New York, there's Pasquale Jones, which is uh, one of my favorite restaurants. And I'll probably mention it again if you ask me about, you know, my favorite places. Um, but they're running a very, very sophisticated wine program. Well, the guy, uh, you know Robert, Robert Bohr, quite well. is one um, of the great he's wine one of the greats. in New York. Um, and they're putting it against pizza. Right. right, and so that that kind of match is and really not a huge list, and not an no, expensive list, not a huge but curated, list, but a very well curated right. list, um, and and um, and so that's the sell of that restaurant in L.A. You've got a place called John and Vinny's, which is coincidentally also a pizzeria. And what are they doing in the back? They have a wine store in the back of the restaurant. And so I do think that you are seeing now, and maybe it's maybe the point is that you're coming down market a little, and it's now be- becoming. Uh, front and center at more casual restaurants, but I think that wine 
as a, as a marketing and selling point in the restaurant is definitely something that's in vogue right now. Well, I was going to ask you, can you give me a fine wine establishment where wine is not part of the overall success? The answer is th- there really isn't. But you've also said that it, not that Pasquale Jones or John and Vinny's is downscale, but it's not, you know, the classic fancy restaurant. The food's incredible, but the wine program is, you yeah. know, a uh, high priority. And there. I think if you, you know, to, 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 I think if you think about a restaurant from the from a previous generation that was known for its wine, you would go to a place like Veritas, right? Uh, and that's purely and, a wine. And that's play. a white white tablecloth restaurant, and that's you know a restaurant that aspires to to, to Michelin stars and 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 four stars, three stars in New York Times. Uh, very expensive, and that you know is the old idea of a wine restaurant. The new idea of a wine restaurant is John and Vinny's or Pasquale Jones, right. or even uh, Charlie Bird, exactly places like that. Do you have any idea? I don't know if you'd know this. You don't have to. I mean, a good restaurant, how important is wine percentage-wise? Oh, I, I think it varies widely. I mean, I think, um, you Take know. Take a place like a Pasquale Jones or something like that. There's a lot of effort towards the wine. I yeah. would think that it. I think that you're seeing those places. I mean, the, obviously, the margins are quite good. I think you're looking at, you know, 30 to 50% of revenue from wine. From wine. Yeah. So that's how Maybe important. more, yeah. Yeah. Because the markups are great. I'm curious your take on millennials. <laughs> which, what impact are millennials making and how are they and how are they changing the restaurant business? Is that a feel? I mean, are people feeling that? Is that a wave? I think, I think the, probably the thing that I would gravitate to in terms of millennial impact is if you think about how millennials are interacting with the world and where they're making discoveries, uh, where they're making restaurant choices, I think that they're part of a trend of a sort of um, what I would call like the splintering of demand for restaurants. And so, what does that mean? It means that millennials, as their sort of default, are scanning Instagram, and that's where they discover restaurants, and that's where they make restaurant choices. And our Snapchat, for example. So discovery is so, heavily through social media. Yeah, and but that, that's that's an important point because if you think about you know where we were starting, I used Zagat, right? And there's a generation you probably of, stare at it when you were you yeah. know a kid for your birthday for hours, for hours, right? Mar- you know, I marked it up. Right. I had different, I had different, you know, a, a whole key for. Diff- I have been here. I want right. to try this. That's um, funny. That's uh, that's that's not how this the millennial generation is discovering restaurants and making choices. So I think. I think that's a big thing, and I think you're going to continue to see that. Um, so that's one aspect. Yeah. What about cost? Are they cheap? Are they cheaper? Are they looking for an experience that's not that much money because it's not that important? I think you're definitely seeing in the data you're seeing uh, millennials are perhaps spending less on uh, restaurants or at least de- de-emphasizing you know, the sort of um, very high price, high-ticket meal. Um, well, but that, I think that, that some of that is still to be sort of I – th- I don't think we entirely know for sure right. uh, what, this, what the impact is going to be in terms of spending say, behavior. You know, arguably, they're spending more time in social places like restaurants, and so there may be a lower average check, but there's more of them dining out. I, I think that there's still uh, – certainly, I can't speak with any, with any authority right. on, on that one. I think millennials are very hip and keyed into wine, but I don't think they're interested in expensive wines, trophy wines. They're probably more interested in natural wines, interesting wines, where, again, a Pasquale Jones, a Estella, you know, has some great choices. Well, so, certainly, I think 
there's they're interested in a different way of describing and talking about wines. I mean, I think you know you're seeing a guy like our friend Gary um, has definitely ushered in a new language and a new vocabulary around wines. And certainly, some of these places like Pasquale Jones are not are not even categorizing wines in the same way that right. they were that you were a decade ago. You know, it's now about there's no adjectives like bright and floral to describe categories. Whereas 10, 20 years ago, you were talking, you know, strictly on varietals and regions. Right. And, and that producers. definitely has changed. Um, Blue Hill does it that way. Yeah. yeah. Compared to other restaurants. All right. Let's uh, shift gears a little. Let's talk about Resi specifically, which is deeply entrenched in the restaurant world. Tell me first how Resi came about. You and Gary you know, talked Resi about the about. idea, but take it from there. <laughs> well, I, you know, as, as the more I talk about Resi and, and the longer we go out this, the more it's clear that I, don't, I need to come up with a good sort of, you know, um, Elevator story, story of story. how we all started. But um, Resi is a result of what Gary and I saw and what on our, what our third co-founder, Mike Montero, the three of us saw is happening in the restaurant business, which is that this technology around restaurants did not and still does not reflect how restaurants have changed. And it doesn't reflect how consumers and restaurants relate to each other and communicate with so each other. So simplistically explain that. Well, the technology simply doesn't exist to to create relationships between customers and restaurants the way it should. And here's here's the simplest, easiest example. When Resi started, if you wanted to confirm a reservation, that was a phone call. Today, at any Resi restaurant, you confirm your reservation via text message. That's a simple shift, right? But it's very but that's it's, the point. It's a simple shift, period. Or comma, it's also a millennial shift. It's a behavioral shift that, behavioral. that reflects the fact that instead of a desktop, it's a mobile device. Right. And Which that's, is where most people are when they're ready to say they're late or cancel. Right. Mobile. And, and so that, that's a very simple example, but it's a potent one about, about how and why Resi came to be. Because that, the, the, the void there, the void in the market in terms of technology that makes it easier for restaurants to do business, that makes it easier for restaurants and, and consumers to connect, didn't exist. So let me ask you an obvious question. Open Table's been around longer than Resi, you know, bigger platform as far as users. That option didn't exist? Doesn't exist today. Doesn't exist today. Okay. So the technology, proprietary, whatever, makes it easier. So that's a good And point. I would say even more, you know, even more to the point, the relationship that Resi has with restaurants and the relationship that Open Table has with their restaurants is 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 polar opposites. Resi engages with our restaurants and really pulls them into the product development process. And the reason we have certain features is because the restaurant industry has said, we want this. That, that was my question. I mean, you focus on the restaurant side as much as the consumer. Yep. You know, good... Good restaurants lead to good customers. We're technology-focused. We're supply-side-focused. We believe that good restaurants, you know, attract good consumers, and that's So instead of just bookings and the the customer, I mean, Danny Meyer always said, if I make my employees happy, they'll go on the floor happy, and the customer experience will be amazing. So it was employee before customer, but the customer got the treatment. If you take care of the restaurant, you you feel that... All right, you said that uh, there's been as much innovation in tech as food on the plate. Yeah. That stuff is being translated 
Well, now there is. You know, I mean, that's the exciting part of what we're doing now. I mean, now you're sort of seeing, you know, there's lots and lots of startups that are that have all kinds of ideas for technology around hospitality and restaurants. Most of it won't work, but there's some there's there's there there will be products that that survive and that and then that thrive. And why and, won't most of it work? Kind well, of because, a good idea, but yeah, not look, a greatly executable idea. It's a technology, you know. I mean, it's a, we throw we throw things on the wall and we see what sticks. Right. And so. You know the things that won't work. We've talked. I've talked about this um, with with a lot of our restaurants. The stuff that won't work is the stuff that probably is too jarring for the restaurant in terms of a shift in operations, or it's something that's too hard for consumers to understand, right. or it's something that consumers just don't want. You know, we saw we we saw a wave of mobile payments companies come through the restaurant business. Um, you know, probably starting in around two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and there was there was a bunch of them. A couple of them shook out. I mean, a couple well, hung on. Well, not really. I mean, you don't. You still don't have mobile payments as uh, you know as a core part of the restaurant, and the reason is because all of these products had a great idea and and had and there was there was a light bulb moment there uh, around what mobile payments could be in restaurants, which is that well, if you if this thing works, then you don't have to pay the bill anymore. You could just get up and walk away from the table, and that could be magical. But what didn't happen was we didn't figure out the operations. And there was too much training involved when those products came to market. And because there was all that training uh, and because the technology wasn't well connected to the point of sale system, that what that magic didn't exist. And so that's that's a long way of answering your question. But the point is for for technology to work in the hospitality setting, you got to have a product market fit. Uh, And that means and that means it's got to make sense. It's got to work easily. It can't be too much of a of a of right. a shift from what's happening today. Otherwise, you lose. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Back up. I'm curious. When you and Gary were talking about the idea of Resi, was Michael part of the mix, or you had the idea and then you sought out the technology? Did you have a technology idea, or you had the idea and you said, "Now we got to create some technology"? I'm well, just curious of the no, genesis from, from of the that. second that we got serious about it being a technology company, you brought Michael and you know what Gary and I. Gary and I may be may be confident and may be bold, but we're not idiots. Right. <laughs> we're not going to or, te- or programmers or tech guys. We're or, not going to build a technology company right. without somebody who knows how to build technology. Right. So. Uh, that went into overdrive yeah. pretty quickly, and it was important to us to to to, to get um, to get a technology person involved. Not only because we needed somebody to build it, but we wanted somebody with a technology background and a technology perspective to start talking about these ideas with us, right. and to agree or disagree with us about about how um, how viable any of this was. So, give, and how com- how compelling it might be. Give or me not. the company's been around about. Four years, a little less. Three years and change, yeah. Three and change. So give me the technology evolution and growing pains. Obviously, you know a lot more today than you did now. There were probably things then that were solid then as now. Yeah. But what you know, what were the biggest changes or growth positive things? Well, I think that I mean not the biggest and the obvious thing is that we started with a very single, very singular, very specific uh, marketing product for restaurants, which was an, which was a way to market premium inventory, and that's now been. Uh, so explain built, that. Pick well, my, what, well, what we what we really saw right access to hard yeah. to get yeah. reservations for a small fee. Yeah, look what we saw. What we saw sticking out like a sore thumb was that 
you have an excess of demand by a factor of 10 at the best restaurants at prime time. And when the bill drops, it's the same price as it is on a Monday night and a Saturday night. Or at 5.30 at, or at 8.00. At 5.30 or at 10.30 or at 8 o'clock. And, and before I say anything else, I think the, what's interesting is that we're largely not much farther along today than we were in terms of that dynamic. But that's what we saw. And so we said, let, there must be a way to market premium inventory in a way that benefits everyone. Uh, and that's where, we, and so that was really where we started. Which we said, we said quite simply and straightforwardly, if you want to make a last-minute reservation at a Charlie Bird, uh, and you want to make that reservation at seven thirty, you're going to have to pay a price for it. In the same way that when you book an airline ticket and you book it at the last minute, it's more expensive than if you booked it six months in advance. And typically, some people embraced it, and some people thought and it was, it was and it was definitely a polarizing idea. But we're okay with that, and we were excited by. We were excited by the fact that it really struck a nerve with people and people understood it. I think the best news was whether you loved it or you hated it, you definitely understood what we were doing, right. which is really important as you're building something. Um, but what we've done now, the company's evolved a tremendous amount, and now Resi is a, is a full-fledged software company, and the opportunity to market premium reservations is part of a much, much broader system of tools and features that allow restaurants to run their business. And so, so now, you know, now we run software at restaurants like La Berna Den and Pasquale Jones, and that is software that is being run in lieu of pen and paper or in lieu of an open table or right. something like that. More sophisticated than an open table Correct. or any pre-existing system. Correct. So let's talk about some statistics for a second. So Resi has, what, about a million-plus registered users? About a million and a half. All right. That's not a proprietary secret number, is it? I gave you the scoop. Okay. Um, you deal with four figures in restaurants, over a 1,000 different yeah, restaurants? Yeah, we have more than a 1,000 restaurants on the platform. We do more than a half a million covers a week across those restaurants. We're in 80, 80, more than 80 markets around the U.S. 80 markets... The reservation service is in how many markets? In 80 markets. It, it, what about the consumer reservation? Uh, well, you can, we, we, you know, with some of the app updates we've made recently, you can now make, open the app and make a reservation at any of our restaurants okay. anywhere in the country. Okay. We make a concerted marketing effort in about 20 cities like Los Angeles and New York and San Francisco and New Orleans and um, Boston and places like that. There's a thing restaurants love about Resi because the Resi user is a committed user and there's a low no-show rate. Lowest in the business. Talk, tell people what a low no-show rate is, about what is it, and why it's important um, to a restaurant. So our no-show rate is about 4% globally. That's across 500,000 covers a week. 4% of those are no-shows. So that means however many reservations are made, Four percent of the people back out. Yeah, and to put that's that in, even with the texting thing that they're not going well, to use. Put those that in, bastards. To, <laughs> to put that in context, most of the other services that are out there run about a fifteen percent. So three, rate. four times. Yeah, quite a quite a quite a lot more, uh, and that's the result of how we how we relate to our consumers. I think, you know, um, we believe fundamentally that consumers don't have any particular motivation to no show. Um, but So we give them the tools to make sure that if they're not coming, they communicate right. that to the restaurant. Right. And you talked about it earlier when the company started having access to reservations for a fee. You got away from shoulder reservations. 
when people go on open table or they call the restaurant, sometimes they get the 5.30 or the 10.30 reservation. Sure. Resi kind of cut through that and made it accessible for well, yeah, fees. I mean, That's well, still well, important? Well, I, you know, some restaurants are using the fees. Um, I think that the, the bigger, the sort of broader... Um, the broader strategy development is that restaurants are using the software to connect with more customers and to create more right. relationships. So with the more analytics customers. are massively important. The analytics are important. The, just the ability. That was part to of the know. evolution we talked about yeah. before. The the shoulder reservation thing yeah. is part of it, but the what, ability to know who's coming through the door really matters quite a lot. Right. Danny Meyer probably almost invented that. I mean, a guy would come in from St. Louis to Union Square Cafe, love Sherry. He would hand it to the guy. Now you can put all that on. You can do a lot of that with technology. So let's talk about Danny Meyer for a a couple of minutes. So Danny Meyer, um, who owns Union Square Hospitality, who has some of the great restaurants in New York, Gramercy Tavern, Union Square Cafe... He's doing something interesting with wine and resi technology and Apple and the Apple Watch. Tell me what's going on with that. It sounds kind of fun. Well, Danny... Or tell um, me what you can tell me. Oh, I can tell you probably most of it. Uh, Danny and his team approached us um, uh, more than a year ago and started talking to us about Union Square Cafe, the new Union Square Cafe, and... Uh, various things that they wanted to accomplish with the restaurant, including making it easier for Psalms to do their jobs. And um, there's a particular physicality to Union Square Cafe, the new Union Square Cafe, which is that the wine cellar is a couple of flights removed from the main floor of the dining room. And so there really is... Above or below? Below. Below. And so uh, there is a lot of back and forth that the Psalms are doing, a lot of flights of stairs uh, climbed. And so one one of the things that we worked with them to solve was... Um, streamlining the wine ordering process and communicating it to the Psalms in a way where we could reduce the number of trips back and forth. And so what we did was fairly straightforward. In the end, we developed a product for the Apple Watch, and all the Psalms wear Apple Watches. And any time a wine is ordered in the dining room, they get an alert on the watch. And so that means if you're on your way down to the cellar for grab one bottle, bottle, you can grab two or three bottles because those two or, two or three wine orders have come in and they're on your wrist. Pretty smart. Um, and so that's something that we worked on with his team and is, is being used. At is it on now. the floor right now? Or it's, it's on the floor live, yeah. And how is it working out? I think it's been, you know, it's been a great streamlining of their operation. It's a very cool idea in a very busy restaurant with a lot of choices and all that. All right, let me ask you one more thing and then we're going to take a break. I'm going to subject you to our wine list. We'll taste a little wine, and then I'll send you home. (laughs) Tell me how you get the penetration and sign on new markets and restaurants. I mean, are you on reputation now? Is it still a sales pitch? Yeah, I think, think, you know, two two main channels. One is obviously the restaurants that we work with. Um, We're very proud of our partners, and they're the best restaurants in the country. And so those kinds of restaurants attract other great restaurants. And so we have lots of restaurants coming in that way. You're hitting some critical mass now. We're, we're definitely... Let's brag um, a little. You signed on Le Bernardin, which yeah, is last arguably week, one of the finest restaurants in the country. Last week, we welcomed Le Bernardin onto the platform. Um, we are bringing on Augustine and, and some of those restaurants now. So um, you get that guy... Hey, when you sign Le Bernardine, then come back and call me. Yeah, I guess Hello? what we're doing now. Yeah, right. <laughs> 
so, so that's good. So it's it's really just a, a sales effort, but it gets easier, right? With right. with that right. on the software side too. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, we also have a sales team. Um, you know, it's a SaaS company, and so if you're selling software as a service, what does that somebody, mean? SaaS software as a service. Okay. Um, if you're selling software, you got to have somebody to sell it. Right. All right. <laughs> Ben, we're going to take a break. We're talking to Ben Leventhal. Ben is the CEO of Resi. We've been talking about Resi in the New York wine scene. When we come back, we're going to subject Ben to our uh, wine list, and we're going to make him drink a little wine. You're listening to The Grape Nation. We'll be right back. Red Mill is a proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network and a big supporter of organic farmers. Ray and Tom Williams are two farmers who have worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray shares what their relationship with Bob's Red Mill means to them. We thought that for over the long term, we thought it would make sense, better sense for the soil. Also, we thought that... Uh, it was something that would improve the quality of the food supply. We're lucky in that we're working with Bob's Red Mill. We're part of a um, regional food network. Uh, with Bob is a fundamental uh, relationship and cornerstone to that. We also work with other best-of-class people in the Northwest, and we're thankful for the long-term relationship that's brought uh, good things to the soil and good things to our long-term farm economic plans. We appreciate his attitude toward absolutely high standards for the benefit of his customers. We take pride in meeting those standards. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Ben Leventhal. Ben Leventhal is the founder of Eater.com, and now he is the CEO and one of the founders of Resi.com. We're going to subject Ben now to our wine list, and we're going to do a special wine and restaurant edition. All right, so Ben, question one. Hit me. At home, you and your wife, you, you're at restaurants, you eat out a lot. What are you drinking now? What are you kind of gravitating towards? Is it seasonal whites because it's summer? Are you trying anything? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely whites and rosés. And, um, you know, we like the white burgundies, so we're over there a lot. And Mr. Fancy Pants. Yeah, you know, I... I <laughs> white burgundy. Don't yeah, we all like that? question. I mean, I, I, I'm just... Hey, ca- I wouldn't expect less from you. Come on. <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, I... I I go through phases of generally in my life, sort of like trying lots of new restaurants or going with classic restaurants, and I'm in a I'm in a phase of where I'm only only going to the restaurants that I love, and so I think it's probably to some extent also sort of trickling back to the wines, and I'm going just going going with the classics. So we talked about a few restaurants. When you go into a wine centric restaurant like a Charlie Bird or something like that. Are you experimental and you say to the Psalm, because you know there's good people there, 
I want to try something new, different? Or do you usually have an idea of what you want to drink? No, I always ask the Somme um, at a place like that because I assume uh, rightfully that they're going to have some sort of things, some, some zigs and zags that are not obvious that are the right move. Um, and they may have something open that night or, what, or you know, they may have just gotten something in and it's not on the list. And so I, I always solicit um, the advice of the Somme. And I often just sort of hand the list back to them and say, right. you do your thing. Um, and I'll, I'll also ask at a restaurant with a deep, deep list, you know, I'll ask the Somme, what's your favorite region? Where, are you mo- where is this list most they exciting for you? when you do that. And uh, sort of dig in in that way as well. Because that's, that's, that's a really easy and sort of foolproof way of figuring out where you know, where the list is, is the most interesting and the deepest is where the psalm has, has gotten excited. They curate, you know, a lot of psalms lean towards a certain region, the Loire Valley, they Precisely. like Australia. So you're in good hands when you let them do that. Um, all right, what about Ben Leventhal's favorite wine and food pairing? I know it's not something you think about a lot, but... You're sitting down, you're having wine, you're eating something. What goes well together that's memorable to you? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I got, don't tell me champagne and oysters. <laughs> I'll throw you the f out of here. I go with the second most obvious, which is just like great steak and you know, like a cab, like a cab, you burgundy. know, a burgundy, something like that. That's always. Uh, I'll take that. Yeah. Sorry. Right. No, no, no. That's good. <laughs> but, and I'm going to give you amnesty for the next thirty seconds. Were you going to say champagne and no. oysters? Okay. I'm not a. Champ- I believe I'm not you. a. I'm not a. I'm not a. Champ- my, my my wife loves champagne, but I I gravitate more to the to the burgundy. Okay. All right. So this this is not a setup question. I ask it to everyone. Your favorite wine restaurant and or bar, and the question is based on restaurants that have great wine selection. And service and all of that. And I'm not asking you to pick favorites or make enemies, but who's doing it well out there? And we may have mentioned some, but give me a few more. Um, well, I mean, certainly Pasquale Jones comes to my mind first, and I know we have mentioned it, but um, I think that they just do a great job of, of mixing sophistication with um, with a casual with a casual right. vibe. Um, Knowledge. Yeah, diversity. for sure. Um, you know, obviously... Uh, what Will and Daniel are doing at Nomad and EMP, um, the, the depth of the t- right. Thank you. What Thomas is doing, um, the depth of that list is is pretty impressive. Yeah. You know, Danny's places have not lots of depth as well. Right. Each each wine guy at each place yeah. is a killer. Whether yeah. it's Michael Engelman or Justin at Gramercy. Yeah, I mean, for those sure. guys know their stuff. Um, so all of those. Do you have a favorite all time wine? Do you have a wine that continues to resonate, like you got laid from a wine, or the wine you had at your wedding, or gift or birthday? Um, what I would say is the wine experience that is most memorable to me. And you're going to call me fancy again, but, um, but you're a fancy guy. <laughs> but I had an opportunity to do a sort of a DRC Latache. Side by side, a bunch of different vintages, and that that was incredibly memorable. And so, without revealing too much, when, how long ago, (laughs) 
Uh, Where, not specific. Was it a restaurant, somebody's house? It, it was a private. It was a private setting. It was somebody's house. Collector. It was a, bunch of, it was a group of collectors all bringing stuff um, to the table to celebrate something, and I was luckily lucky enough to be tagging along, and it turned into really quite an epic tasting. So DRC for our listeners is Domain Romani Conti. It's a Burgundy. It's probably considered. You know, the greatest, most sought-after wine in the world. Um, so you drank multiple wines, vintages? Yeah, all the way back to the 60s. Wow. Now, be honest with me here. How much DRC were you drinking previous to this? <laughs> uh, he, here a couple tastes I mean, here and there? A couple of sips here and there. I'm not sure that I... Maybe so that once was, I had a glass That was myself. the mother load that, that yeah, day. And maybe all. once or twice I had a glass to myself. Now... Here's a fair question. You know about the wine. You know about the people. Was the wine amazing or was it the whole mystique of, you know, all these cool wine guys, DRC, this is going to be incredible. You didn't even taste it. You you willed it. I mean, or was it something that was really – because that's a big wine thing, the sensory – I would say that's almost impossible for me to answer because okay. no, because wine is come on, Sam. Wine is so much about about the environment and very much so. It. It's been it's been studied to be true, and so part I, you of know, it. I think objectively, I think objectively, those wines, the sort of the 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 the. The, the depth of them, the layers of flavor, the way that the sort of you picked the wine, up on all of that, the, narr- the the way the wine evolves on your palate. I mean, there's something that's sort of objectively quite something there, but also, of course, the so when you peel always, all that other stuff away, the wine was still pretty slam and amazing. Look, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you this. I, so, as part of the, as you know, uh, when you open these wines that 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 have been in storage for quite a long time. Some of the bottles, you know, you open 10, one of them's corked. Shots. One of them's shot. It's one you know? in 10 a lot um, of times. And so we opened one of those, and uh, and the subtlety of, of how it w- had been ruined was such that really I tasted it, and I said, wow, this is another great wine. <laughs> the Psalms, what you saw happening, this is about a group of about 10 people, uh, half Psalms, half non-Psalms, and so... What you saw happening was the psalms started to sort of whisper, and the psalms obviously tasted something that was off. But you know, to my palate, right. which which I'm um, you know is is so, so it is was a layman's it. palate. It was a, it was a great wine, and probably objectively, it could have been passed for a great wine right. in a restaurant to most people. But those guys, uh, but are those so guys, trained you know, that. those guys know. All right, I usually ask my guests because you know they're a lot of the guests are heavily in the wine business to recommend best wine around 15 bucks red and white so the question to you is if you were going out friday night to a friend's house for dinner and you wanted to spend 15 to 20 bucks for wine what would you grab and bring them um so i i would say one of the bottles that i have in my in my refrigerator or in my my closet uh that i sort of buy by the case is the baby baby sasakaya which is a le difficile which is the lowest end sasakaya um, it's a good one. Uh, a Cabernet Sangiovese blend. D-I-F-F-E-U-S-C-A. I think it's D-I-F-E-S-E. E. Is it? I think so. Yeah, I, you're right. You're right. Dif- My bad. Dif- yeah. Um, uh, and that's a, that's a wine that sells for, I think, 18 22 right. bucks. 
Um, one of the great winemakers. From one of the great winemakers. I've got it in a bunch of different vintages. It's all good. It's all consistent. It, you know, it's sort of, I always, I think it sort of tastes a lot, a lot more expensive than it is. Yeah. Um, so I, I That's bring the that challenge wine. to find a yeah. wine in that range that tastes above its price. So I, so that's one for me. I also like um, uh, uh, Ludi, the wines that are being made. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that exactly right. L-I-U-D-I-T. Yeah. They make very good value price wines out of the West yeah, Coast. Yeah, exactly. Those uh, are, are, you, are you impressed? Yes. <laughs> I know you did your homework, and I'm impressed that you did your homework, but that's a terrific no, those choice. Because um, that's a high-quality value wine. And they're, and they're making wine. And a diversity wine. of varieties. Yeah, and they're making wine on the West Coast in a, in a Loire Valley style. Right. Um, and uh, I, th- to me, their rosé, it's a little bit more expensive than your, than your $20 price point. I think it's closer to 30 Right. Um, but they but have that stuff rosé. Uh, is in, is really crisp and clean, and um, that's kind of the rosé that I'm drinking if I have the choice. Good choice, because there's so many rosés that are in so many different styles, Italian, French, provincial, and all that. All right, last question. You did a yeoman's job here. <laughs> what do you think, and I don't think we answered this, what's the next big tech thing in restaurants? Either you're working on it, you're hoping to get there, you think it's going to happen. What is it? Um, I look, I think two things. One is there's just going to be more good tech in restaurants. I think that's okay. a big point so to be made. So continued evolution yeah. of tech. Continued evolution. It's going to get cheaper and it's going to get better and it's going to get more agile for the restaurant. Two is... More penetration. More penetration. Two is um, I think in the next five years you're going to see the end of cash in restaurants. Really? I think it's going to be all... Are you saying... Mobile payments and cards. Okay, so cards stay there. Yeah, it's cash will go away. They'll up the game on mobile payments. I believe so. Okay, I believe you're probably right. All right, so that's Ben's answers on the uh, wine list. We'll post them on our website and on our Facebook page. All right, Ben, we're going to wrap up the show with our last segment. It's called the Weekly Wine Sip. It's when we get to taste a little wine on the air. I mean, that's why I'm here. You said we were going to be drinking wine. Well, I gave you a little wine when you came in, and now we have some now. So every week we taste a different wine on air. For our Weekly Wine Sip this week, we're tasting an interesting wine, a 2013 Sinegal, S-I-N-E-G-A-L, Napa Valley Sauvignon Blanc. So 2013, it's got a little bottle age. A lot of times when you buy Sauvignon Blanc, you're buying a 15, a 16. It's a relatively new winery in California. It opened in 2013, and it's owned by a guy named James Senegal. And what was interesting to me is James Senegal was the co-founder of Costco. Really? So he had a little money and said, hey, I'll go buy a winery. So him and his son are running the winery. And kudos to Costco in the sense that it's probably the best big box wine seller. In the, they, they curate wines for a big pass-through place like this. The wine's a bit pricey, so it's not the wine you'd bring to your uh, friend's house. It retails for about 45 bucks, which is typical for a Napa Sauvignon Blanc that a rich guy paid a lot of money <laughs> for property and is making wine and all that. It's available by the Senegal mailing list and at better wine cellars. So, Jack, my friend, will you take that bottle, pour me a little, and will you give Ben a little and pour yourself some? So Sauvignon Blanc, very famous from uh, New Zealand, has certain qualities. So, Ben, I want you to put your wine-tasting hat on. 
So let's look at the color first. Pale yellow. Typical uh, Sauvignon Blanc, right? Let's give it a smell. Sniffy sniff, as Gary would say. So it's got a little of that citrusy, a little grassy, not too grassy. What do you pick up? Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting a little of that, right? A little right. citrus, a little orange, maybe? Almost. This is a... Lemon uh, orange? Yeah. This is an adjective that you get with Sauvignon Blancs, almost like a little cat pee, that, that sharpness. Mm-hmm. I got that. Okay. All right. So let's, uh, let's throw it over the tongue and let's see uh, what we get here. All right, so I'll go first. Sauvignon Blancs tend to be very grassy, very limey. This is not that grassy. It's restrained that way. It definitely has some citrus and wine, but not overpowering. When you get that little tingle on your tongue, tongue, that's acidity. It's got a little acidity, which is great for food. Now, what are you picking up? You're picking up any fruit, mineral? I'm getting getting some minerality, I think. I think that I'm getting some like some some something earthy. Psalms hate that term, <laughs> but I know what you mean. Something earthy, stony. Yeah, exactly. Okay, any fruit, little tropical fruit or not? Maybe not a ton. Okay, so here's what I'm getting. There's actually I don't know if this is leftover from the glass or sediment. Is it maybe a little grapefruit? Definitely yeah. grapefruit. Definitely a characteristic of uh, Sauvignon Blancs. Little honey, not sweet, maybe like a dried honey. Um, and it's got good acidity. It's not a flat, flabby wine. Um, so it's typically California in the sense that it doesn't have those characteristics and all that. Do you like this wine? I wouldn't be drinking too much of this wine, I don't think. And certainly at the price, you wouldn't do that. I think I it's think a so. well-made wine. Um, people have certain likes about Sauvignon Blanc. This may not fit the category. Where are you as a Sauvignon Blanc drinker? Uh, I like Sauvignon Blanc, okay. but I, 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 go for, I, I, I seek out something a little bit. I think the word I would use is a little bit milder. Yeah. This, to me, is something that would get cloying by the end of the first glass. and I like Hard a, to drink all I night. I like a wine. Sauvignon, that, Bl- Sauvignon Blanc, you can go all night. Yeah, I like a wine that you know you can get two, two and a half glasses, three in. I, I would agree with you. I think it's a good wine. It's a well-made wine. It's a style of wine that you have to like. Not necessarily my style. I could drink it. Definitely not Ben's style. So that's the 2013 uh, Sauvignon Blanc from Senegal. Um, all right. Worth a try. All right, we're going to wrap up the show, Ben. If you have a question, wine happening, or event, hit me up at The Grape Nation. Hit me up at Sam at thegrapenation.com. That's Sam at thegrapenation.com. We'll answer any questions you have. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. We'll post Ben's wine list answers, if I can make out what the hell they were. <laughs> um, and we'll post the weekly wine sip selection on Facebook. And follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby and on Twitter at BenRuby. And we just launched a new webpage, www.thegrapenation.com. You'll see a picture of a very handsome Ben Leventhal. You'll see his wine list answers. You'll get a little background on him and all our other guests. Um, Chock full of show and guest info. Ben, where can we find info about you on social media and even more importantly about Resi? 
Uh, Resi is at Resi, R-E-S-Y, across all social media. So that's Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, just at Resi. So I know uh, our, nothing about Resi. I can go on, get a free app, yeah. sign on. Resi.com is our website, of course. Okay. And, and you can certainly find all the download info there okay. as well. So search it in the App Store, R-E-S-Y. It'll direct you through sign-ups yep. and all of that stuff. There's no fee to sign up. Free to sign up. It'll tell you you can put a credit card in so you can prepay and all of that stuff, and you're off and running with that. And if people want to follow what Ben's doing, at Ben Leventhal. Yes, sir. Instagram and Twitter. All right. I want to thank my guest, Ben Leventhal from Resi. I want to thank our engineer, David, in the bullpen tonight. Um, And don't forget, we're in the midst of our summer fundraising drive. Go to Heritage Radio Network dot org backslash donate i know ben's not going to like this idea but maybe skip a meal out this month <laughs> take that money and just donate it to heritage radio network dot org we love backslash heritage. donate we're big supporters of food restaurants and wine so ben again thank you for coming in i'm sam ben ruby and you've been listening to the grape nation listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.